Good morning. Well, as you see in the bulletin there, um, the sermon today is going to be concerning biblical counseling. And actually, I'm going to be on a, uh, several messages regarding biblical counseling. And the, the title of that series is going to be going to be entitled, Equip for Counseling, Understanding the Role of Biblical Counseling in Church Ministry. So the idea of this is uh, kind of behind um, my purpose in this church, fulfilling a uh, desire to be uh, in the community and things like that. Uh, we're going to be, in some way, providing biblical counseling to, uh, obviously, to people in the church, but also people outside the church in the community. So that's kind of what spurred this, this series on. And so, the first few messages will be on some framework of biblical counseling, and then we'll actually get into some, of, some issues regarding uh, biblical counseling. So that's kind of what uh, the idea is here. So, as I said, it's really to set forth a, a really an introductory uh, idea behind how to um, counsel. Because, really, God has uh, saved us, redeemed us, and given us his spirit, and we're all counselors. I think one, one error that uh, people have, and even I've heard of, of pastor, uh, I'm not going to name his name, but he said he, he didn't feel qualified to counsel even people in his church. And that is such an erroneous thing, not just for a pastor, but for any Christian in the church. You know, if God has given if you his, his spirit and you're redeemed, you have the ability by the power of, of His Spirit through His Word to counsel people, to give them a God's wisdom. And so uh, the purpose of this is to, to help us understand uh, biblical counseling, not only individually, uh, but towards you know, maybe co-workers, people you come in contact with uh, in the community, and, um, and things like that. So the first message is entitled, Crucial Presuppositions and Principles in Biblical Counseling. And the, the passage that we will briefly look at and come into um, greater detail on either next time I preach or the following after that is Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. So if you want to make your way there, that would be great. So as I, as I try to think about um, what to use to introduce this, um, just hearing some, some really sad news on, on the internet and um, some, some of my experiences in the past, actually I, I lived a couple months back in the day in year 2005, I, I lived on a Native American reservation for a couple months. I did some forestry work out there and really open my eyes to the really uh, the struggles that those people have. And um, some of it's uh, certainly uh, an issue as, as far as the governmental assistance, but um, they're, they're really gripped by a lot of enslavement. And really one of the issues that, they, that is very prevalent, not only in Native American communities, but in uh, communities and ethnicities throughout the world, is suicide. You know, I looked up some statistics on the Internet and just really, really surprised me. Nearly 45,000 deaths in 2016 are attributed to people committing suicide. It's really, it's considered the the 10th leading cause of death. And it's actually the second 
leading cause of death in people aged 10 to 34. To go further, uh, quoting an a, a, a article regarding a suicide on a Native American reservation, it says the Justice Department had formed a national task force to examine the violence and its impact on American Indian and Alaska Native children at a hearing by the task force, the, the reservation of the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community in Scottsdale, Scottsdale, Arizona. At this meeting, the task force co-chairman asked this one question. He said, how many of you know a young person who has taken their life? Now, he's talking to young kids. And all 15 of these kids raise their hand. And it's, it's a sad reality. You know, you have to think about, you know, what a person goes through in their mind to, to bring themselves to the point of committing suicide, taking their own life. And sadly, there's a, there was a pastor in Chino, California, that committed suicide this past, a few days ago. He was married and had three, three sons. And um, it's just a really, really uh, sad, sad reality. So this brings up uh, an issue in society that ought to really grieve us and give us pause in how we can minister to people in uh, places like this. Because they're around you. You may not know about it. You may know of somebody. I don't know. But the issue is that people struggle with this. People struggle with depression and anxiety that lead them to take their own life. And suicide has really gripped families and friends and even colleagues that I know. Um, so if not personally, you surely have, have heard about these, these situations, these, these unfortunate scenarios. And really, as I said, we ought to think about how to really minister to people like this because God will bring people into your life, uh, maybe not somebody that, that has um, struggled with this, but other issues. And God, God in his great wisdom has given us his spirit and given us his word to be able to help people with these kinds of soul problems. So with that, let's think about and begin to understand how to bring the word of God to bear upon people's lives. That's, the real, that's really the idea behind biblical counseling. You know, like I said, I kind of referred to it uh, at the beginning, is that, you know, when, you, when people hear that term... They think, of some, they think of somebody that has been certified. Now, there are certifications out there, legitimate certifications, that you can go and take classes and be, be certified through uh, associations like ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and, and the like. But it should be a term, as I said, that we can use for ourselves. If we have been redeemed, if we have been saved by the grace of God, we ought to consider ourselves a biblical counselor, that we can understand what the Word of God says and be able to bring it to bear upon a person's life. It's not something that's easy to do, because everybody's different. Everybody has different personalities. Some are very high-strung, and some are very laid-back. And that, that will kind of frame how you, how you really minister to that person's heart and his mind. 
Because you really have to get past the person's behavior and see, see their heart, see their true need, and, and see the true need of what ha- God has intended for, for, for them to, um, to have. And so really we ought to follow the, the, the model of Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, displayed this perfectly. Even in our imperfect state, we can uh, glean some uh, lessons from the life of Christ. And we, we'll look at that in, in a message to come. But really, just briefly, just, just think about how, how Christ ministered to people. He knew what to speak to them. He spoke the truth. He spoke the truth of God's word to them. But he not, not only did that, but he, he, understand, he understood the person's need and he spoke to that need, their true need. And he often used questions. Even the Apostle Paul, you can see that he uses questions to minister to people. And that's an effective ministry tool because what it does is it causes a person to begin to, uh, maybe for the first time, understand their motivations from the heart instead of their, their behavior. They begin to think about how, how they're acting and how they're responding. So Jesus really spoke to their need, and he knew how to speak to them. But also, too, he, he was very timely in his, in his speech. He knew the right time, and you could say that he knew when to say what to say. And you can just imagine how many other opportunities that Jesus had that aren't revealed in uh, the Word of God to, to minister to people. Probably hundreds, if not thousands, of, of testimonies that we will probably hear in glory of you know, the, 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 the wondrous and glorious um, example through, through Christ. So we can take that. We can take that and learn in this uh, realm of biblical counseling, knowing, knowing what, uh, what to say and how to say it and when to say it. It is a challenge. You know, the, the Word of God, especially the book of Proverbs, speaks a lot about the timing of things and how to the timing of things as it pertains to speech. You know, as I as I quoted before in, uh, in another message, but even a fool is is considered wise if he doesn't say anything. And so we ought to learn from that. And so it's not always the wisest thing to to say something. It may be the wisest thing to to listen and gain understanding and gain involvement into the person's life so that you can really, really speak into their hearts. So really, throughout this, this, um, this series, we're going to be talking about depression. We're going to be talking about conflict and conflict resolution. Uh, maybe possibly uh, some, about eating disorders, uh, fear and anxiety. Even how to, how to minister to somebody in crisis. Crisis is happening all the time. If somebody gets involved in a serious car accident and learning how to, to work through those, those issues. Even violence or prejudice. Prejudice has been in the, uh, the news lately. And we ought to, as, as Christians, seek to, to be wise and learn how to, uh, to answer um, some of these issues, legalism, death, divorce, and uh, abuse. We, we may not talk about all of those things, but we will address some of them um, in greater detail 
But I just wanted to, to mention those. So I'm, I'll just define, just give you a simple definition of, of biblical counseling that will kind of guide our way. It's really discerning God's intent, intended need for the person, and using God's word by the Holy Spirit to bring about the necessary conformity to the likeness of Christ for the glory of God. It's discerning God's intended need for the person and using God's word by the Holy Spirit to bring about the necessary conformity to the likeness of Christ for the glory of God. And I should say, uh, something that came to mind is, as far as ministering to people, I think one of the things that, that can be a, a hang-up for, for Christians is, is pursuing, um, and not that they shouldn't, pursuing a life uh, committed to, to holiness, you know, you, you, you have your discipline, but it's almost like sometimes you can have blinders on, and, and like, a, like a racehorse, you're running down the track with blinders on, and you almost forget about the people around you, and you forget about what the... What, what kind of hurts and pains that those people may have gone through. Because, you know, I, I've experienced, and pro- you probably have experienced too, you can probably recall to mind, people that, that God has put, you, put in front of you to talk to and to minister to. Whether that's on the airplane or on the train or on the taxi or, you know, even um, in, in the workspace. The Lord does those things. And I had an experience, I shared it with most of you before, but I had an experience when I, when I lived in California. I worked for a pest control company, and it was, uh, it was a day, it was actually Good Friday, and some of you may remember the story, but it's, it's always going to stick in my mind because I wanted to go to Good Friday service, but my, my boss asked me to go service this one woman's house. And, and I'm thinking, well, I want to go to Good Friday service. And he, you know, he's a God-fearing man, and you know, I, you know, I figured he, he understood that, but I was, you know, what am I going to do? Say, say no? <laughs> um, so, uh, so I went, and I, I checked. Basically, I just had to, to, to check these rat traps and mouse traps in, in the house. But really where this, where this applies to this, to this discussion is, you know, I go in there, and I, and I start to under... Because she's not one of my normal clients, and, you know, I'm trying to understand, you know, you know, what the problem was and things like that. And she walks into this, to the garage. She just starts crying. I, I had no idea what was going on. Well, she proceeded to tell me about some issues that her and her husband had gone through. They were basically separating and getting a divorce. And then I knew why. It wasn't about missing Good Friday service. You know, it was about ministering to that person. And, and I'm not sharing that story because, you know, to puff myself up. I'm sharing that story because it was very impactful for, for me. And, and it, was a, it was a pivotal point in my life to learn that I was not only just in seminary and working as a pest control person, but there's people around me that have needs. And so I say that to you is that those people you come in contact with are the same. Maybe not necessarily that same situation. That there's people that, that struggle, are struggling with issues in their life. And you have answers. Not that you don't struggle with things. We all struggle. We're, we're sinners and we battle and struggle with, with our flesh. But see, the thing is, God has given us His Spirit to, and insight to, to minister to people. And may that be an encouragement. And this, this whole series be an encouragement to you to uh, put some thought towards the people around you and how, and how to minister to them um, and how to care care for them.
So let's look at Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians real briefly. And this will kind of set the tone for what biblical counseling really looks like. So uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul says to to the church of Colossae, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, yes, this is, a, this is a passage that's written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. You know, it's really Christological in nature, meaning that it gives a lot of instruction on the person and work of Christ. It gives insight into a Christian's spiritual relationship with Christ as, as well. But really, we ought to see, if you are familiar with the, the, this book of Colossians, that the purpose is that to communicate to the Gentile Christians were, were taught about Christ and their union with him and were exhorted to have their conduct flow from that union with Christ, that relationship with Christ. That's really the, the purpose of the book of Colossians. But within that, we have this passage where the Apostle Paul gives, gives you a, a bit of insight into uh, his ministry and his, his pastoral ministry and ministering to others. So let's continue on in, ver- in chapter 2, and we're all going to read from, uh, verses 1 through verse 5. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So here you see a, a, a really a description of Paul's ministry to people. What does that ministry look like? Well, if you look up above, we didn't read it, but verse 24 says that he rejoiced. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The Apostle Paul went through rigorous sufferings, not only for them, but for, the cost, for the, costing himself plenty for the sake of Christ. And you can see he refers to it there. But also... He sees that his ministry is what? A stewardship from God, verse 25. This gospel ministry is a stewardship, preaching and ministering to people. And really the the central message in verse 26 through 28, you see the, the central message was Christ. Jesus Christ. We proclaim him, referring to Jesus. But what else? Verse 29, and then into um, chapter 2, you see that he labored. 
he strenuously labored for the cause of Christ. But what happened from that? There was, with all his, his exertion of, of labor, you see that it bore fruit of, of faith in people's life. And what does he say? That they would be complete in resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ. You see, that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul had on his mind ministering to people. Proclaiming Him that they would come to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it says, in whom hidden, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what does this mean in verse 26, or 28, I'm sorry, we proclaim. It's really the idea of preaching, but then here he says admonishing. And this carries the idea of counseling. One-on-one ministry to people. Have you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul knew so many people by name? Well, he probably counseled them or ministered to them um, on a daily basis or individually. I don't know. But you can read, read in the book of Romans how Paul just lists out the, the people that he ministered to. I mean, it, it always it fascinates me about that. So you have this proclamation, this preaching ministry, and it included counseling, but then it also included teaching as well. You have the teaching aspect in wisdom and labor. So you had the, the, the message of the ministry, which was Christ. You had the, really the manner of his ministry, which was what I just explained, the proclamation, which included admonishing and teaching with all wisdom and labor. But then, as I said, you have the purpose in which he ministered to people. Found in chapter 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of this understanding, resulting in a true understanding of Christ. And like I said, we're going to look at more of those details to come and how they apply to our life. But I want to draw a few conclusions from this. Really, the capstone of biblical counseling is that of Christ. So you have two missions as a biblical counselor. Either the person is a Christian and needs to be exhorted to a more likeness in the Christ, or you need to preach, proclaim, you minister, counsel them, Share the gospel of salvation with them that they might be saved. Those are really the two scenarios that, that you are going to be dealing with and have and should have in your mind. And the means of this instruction is all, all the wisdom, all this wisdom that God has given in his word. And this is referred to in chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul had all this wisdom, the Word of God. And certainly he was an apostle, but he had this wisdom, wisdom from God, which includes the Word of Truth, the Gospel, chapter 1, verse 5. And what is this manner? Counseling people is not easy. 
Paul toiled. And this, this idea of labor here that was used and that I referred to, it should be understood as a, a wearisome toil, agonizing, agonizing over uh, ministering to people the truth of God's Word, rolling over in your mind an understanding of a passage on how to communicate it to somebody, to, to a person's needs that you, that you may know, that, me, that you may be communicating it, it to, even now. So with that, you should see that there is a desperate need for biblical counseling. A desperate need, as I, as I pointed out with the examples of uh, suicide, but there's so many other things out there and other examples that you can you probably think of that people are being, being confronted with. And um, also, too, I should say, there's so many examples out there of not to follow a biblical counseling. People are not being ministered to by uh, the Word of God, but instead of that, the, the wisdom of man, which will lead, it's like a bridge to nowhere. And that there, you should also see, too, that there's biblical, the biblical instruction for biblical counseling. And that's the, 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 is what we talked about. The capstone, which is Christ. The means of that, which is the word of God. And the manner, striving with all you have, agonizing over the ministry to people. And as I said, the context in which Paul did this was to the church. That's what he, that's what he was set apart for as a minister of the gospel, preaching and teaching and raising up men in churches. But God has, has bestowed upon you His Spirit and given you a stewardship of the gospel. And the question is, how are you caring for this stewardship of entrustment of the gospel that He has given you? So in that, let us consider four crucial presuppositions and principles of biblical counseling. Four crucial presuppositions of, and principles of biblical counseling. So the first, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm just going to state the presupposition. Presupposition is that, that God is holy. The holiness. The holiness of God. Second is the, sufficient, the sufficiency of Scripture. Third is that man was created in God's image. And fourth is the sin of man, the sinfulness of man, the depravity of man. So the holiness of God, the sufficiency of Scripture, man is created in God's image, and the sinfulness of man. So the reason why I chose these, you could probably add a few more to, the, to this list, but these are really pivotal theological uh, positions. And really, theological positions that uh, some and a lot of people are forgetting about when they counsel people, including, obviously, those that are counseling people according to the world's standards and the world's wisdom. But let us set this in our mind, the holiness of God the sufficiency of Scripture, man was created in God's image, and the sin of man. 
So let us face it in, in some, some of these positions that are, that are not to affirm, that, that some do not affirm and apply these to counseling. I'm not going to talk about any of the, you know, a lot of the, the details, even throughout uh, the, these various messages and some of the approaches, but just know that there's a whole lot of approaches out there, even uh, with uh, what people call Christian psychology, that people are being misled. And the, the real issue is not being addressed in the person's life. So that's important to state. Now certainly I should also say that, that counseling somebody is, is very complex. You deal with a whole kind, all kinds of, of situations. From maybe sometimes a very simple to very complex. Even, even into the complexity of dealing with maybe some physical things the person is struggling with. And that's an important thing, too, to, to realize that, you know, as a, you know, a biblical counselor, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you've got to be careful because, you know, some people may be struggling with physical issues that they ought to really go to, their, to the doctor to be diagnosed and to be checked out because you are not a doctor. And that's really one of the things that they emphasized in, in, in seminary and in pastoral training is that you've you got to make sure that, that you be wise in, in what you say to somebody, that you don't counsel somebody according to what they may have a health issue that uh, a qualified doctor ought, to, ought to, um, to be giving insight to. And that really should be uh, something that should be put in our minds that there, um, you know, there, there should be doctors out there redeemed hopefully, that have a, a biblical worldview that can give a person the proper understanding and direction. And I certainly don't know all of the, the details and, and things behind biblical counseling, but my uh, purpose here is to um, have us be, be thinking about it and uh, apply it to our lives. So let, let's look at the, the first presupposition, the holiness of God. Some people may ask, you know, why are you starting there? Why are you starting with the holiness of God? Well, I think that it's, the idea is to communicate the fact that, to start with God himself first. And really, the holiness of God is, is a summary of the entire attributes of God himself, so at the very least, and very shameful, there are some Christians that have minimized the holiness of God. Minimized it purposely, maybe, I don't know, but I'm sure that there's some out there that, that minimize the holiness of God to try to, uh, maybe in some sense, try to say that they, they have liberty to do things that are actually sinning against God and against Christ and against others. <clears throat> Or there, you know, there, there's, there may be some that they ignore this portion of the doctrine. And I would say that those who don't really address the, this, or even mention sin in a person's life, ignore this, this crucial uh, theological point about the holiness of God. But then there, there may be others that are just, just mistaken. And maybe you could start somewhere else. But I, you know, as I was thinking about you know, what to say, I figured that this it would be a very uh, important point to, to start with, to, in a sense, start on the mountaintop with the holiness of God. So the holiness of God, along with all the theological truths about God, sets the starting point and the proper course 
for biblical counseling. And why? Why? You could ask, well, why? Well, I would say, I would say because what it does is, once a person understands, at least to some degree, and we, we, don't, we can't, it's impossible to know and comprehend fully the holiness of God. And re- when I talk about the holiness of God, it's, it's referring to the, how, how much God is, is separate from us. Now, we, there, are, there are some similarities to you know, cre- being created in God's image, certainly. We are not little gods walking around, but God has created us. In his image. But more so, God is holy. Think about this. God is so far beyond who you are. Think about God's compassion. Think about God's mercy. I mean, if God is so set apart from us, why would he redeem man such as us? Well, God is compassionate. God is merciful. God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why. That's who God is. And all all of those attributes and more are summarized in the holiness of God. But really, you ought to see how God is separate from you. And an illustration, as best as I could think, is like the, the study of astronomy. You can go outside on a clear night, and you can see some stars in the sky and wonder at you know, the, the various phases of the moon, the various positions at times of the planets and stars in the sky, and the vastness of outer space. But that doesn't even come close to describing what God's creation is. I mean, just, just the vastness of his creation. The intricacy of God's creation. The human eyeball, just the, the microbes in the soil, how all that works together for plants to grow. And, you know, I work out in the woods that I can, you know, work with trees and people like the gardens and, and things like that. Just the, the wonder of all those Wondrous creations, the creatures in the ocean, the, the vast variety of, of the, his, his creation. And then you lift your eyes to the sky and you look out at night and you see just, you know, stars on a pinhead. So, so much that you can't even comprehend that's beyond in outer space. Scientists have given their life to study this. Some are even blinded to the fact that, that God is the creator of all these things. And that's really, in a sense, when you try to understand the holiness of God or God himself in this way, you're just uh, touching the surface of who God is. And in a, in a, in a way, you ought to feel very small. And studying and understanding the holiness of God and His, and His compassion and His mercy and His faithfulness and His redeeming love that He has, he has shed upon us and in His whole vastness and majesty that God would save 
a simple, wicked sinner such as you and I. So as I said, holiness is to be set aside for something special. And really, you see examples of this throughout Scripture, symbols of this, of light and fire, representing God's holiness. And you probably can recall examples in Scripture where you, um, people that have seen or have been confronted with, I should say, the holiness of God and what happens. The cherubim. And you think of Moses. And there's plenty of other examples given throughout Scripture. So words referring to the holiness of God, or holiness, I should say, in Old Testament and New Testament is used approximately 2,000 times. And it's referred to to describe people and inanimate objects. But the important thing is to see that holiness describes every person of the Trinity, including the Holy Spirit. And you see the Holy Spirit was given a, a set aside... A specific task, not only the, you see it in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, was set aside to indwell his people and to lead them into a more holier life by the grace of God. Let's read a couple passages. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, and he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And see, this is what I was talking about. About in some way, that we can have a refreshed view of the holiness of God. That we look upon God not with flippancy, but you see what happened here. Not only with the cherubim, but you see Isaiah. What does he say? He's a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. You can also see an example of that if you want to write it down in Isaiah 43 of holiness. 
Isaiah 43, verses 14 through 17. So there's essentially, when you're talking about the holiness of God, there's two main categories of of God's holiness. God's majestic holiness, which you can see in Exodus 15, verse 11. Majestic being great and grand, but, but also an aspect of moral holiness, being separate from sin. Psalm 5, verse 5. So God is not only set apart in His great majesty, but He's also set apart being free from any sort of sin. So this brings us to application. What's the principle here? So we had the presupposition, the holiness of God. The principle is that the holiness of God exposes every man's need of salvation from sin and also sets a course for living. You could probably add some other things onto that. I'm thinking specifically towards the idea of biblical counseling. So it's important to start here because this person that you counsel, especially if they don't know Christ, certainly ought to be confronted with the holiness of God. His majesty. His grandeur. But also his, Him being separate from sin. So there's, other, there's some other applications that you can just jot down because we need to move on. But there's expectations of holiness that you would share as a believer of holiness in, uh, in God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. And as I mentioned, the, the Holy Spirit drives us to a holy living. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, this is... What God's will is for us is to be what? Be sanctified. To live a holy life. To be set apart for His use. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. You have this abiding spirit in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. You abide in Him because of His Spirit. So, we'll, Mark is going to be preaching on 1 John um, here when he when he returns, so he will be you'll be hearing about those passages. Um, certainly, the, those are towards towards the middle and the end of the book, so it'll take a while. But he he will be be covering those things. So I just want to repeat this: the the, the principle of the holiness of God and really approaching a, a biblical understanding of it that it ought to expose every man's need of salvation from sin, and this really set a course. Living a holy life. So just think about those people that sit across from you or however, you know, what kind of setting that you meet in to counsel somebody. These are the things to keep in mind. Because I think one of the things is, is that one of, one of the challenges, I should say, when you, when you talk to somebody or you're, you're seeking to, to counsel someone is to understand what their true need is. And to not go down rabbit trails. Because, especially if you're talking to somebody that's an unbeliever, people can be very confused. 
and be talking about all these things, all these things going on in her life, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or fighting with her girlfriend, or divorce, or, you know, those things are, are an issue, and you have to deal with them, but you have to understand of how, how to tackle them and how to address the needs in a, in a person's heart. Okay, the second pro, the pro, presupposition is the sufficiency of Scripture. So a part of this doctrine, this teaching of the word, is the word of God, is the sufficiency of Scripture. And you can go in to talk about all kinds of things, inerrancy, inspiration, and we'll touch on some of those even on down the road. But I chose the sufficiency of Scripture because a lot of methods, a lot of worldly methods, do not use or do not see uh, a value in the sufficiency of Scripture. But I should say, I should also say that, that there are uh, Christian counselors out there that will claim that the Word of God is inerrant, that it is authoritative, but they will, not, they will say that it's not sufficient to deal with people's needs. It is. I will argue, at least to some degree, that the Word of God is sufficient to help, not to help, the Word of God is the source of a revelation of God, but also to minister, to draw truths out, to meet the needs of hurting and confused people. The Chicago Statement on biblical inerrancy said this. It said, The authority of Scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ are, as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To, stay, to strive to, to be faithful to the scriptures in faith or conduct is disloyalty. I'm sorry. To stray from scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of the holy scriptures is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession. Of its authority. So I'm going to move a little bit more quicker here so we can get through the rest of these points. But first, you must see that, that Christ is the ultimate counselor. You remember the passage in Isaiah? What is he called? The name of Jesus. Wonderful counselor. And you see that as we, ref- as we talked a little bit about that in the Gospels. You see that fleshed out, that he is a wonderful counselor, displays his deity, displays it in, in his ministry, and he himself is the incarnate word, word made flesh. Turn to Psalm chapter 19. continue on in this examination, and I'm going to run through this kind of quickly, but it's important to see, because 
This will give you, after this, this will give you no pause for saying with conviction that the word of God is sufficient. Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 14. I was going to read it, but I'm just going to state these truths. First, you must see that the the word of God is described in multifaceted ways here as testimony, as the law of the Lord, as commandment of the Lord. And that, that, that draws out this multifaceted purpose of the word of God. But it continues on here, and we see these descriptions. What does it say in verse 7? It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So the law of the Lord is perfect, it's whole, it restores the soul, it revives the soul. What else? Continue on there, it's sure, it's, meaning it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy to, to impart wisdom, as the psalmist says there. What else? Continues on, it says it's right. It's true, and in that it rejoices the heart, and it's pure, it's lucid, it's not confusing, and it, it's enlightening to the eyes. That, that means it brings understanding to a place of ignorance. And you can see those concepts even that are pulled out even in the book of Proverbs. The wisdom of God imparting wisdom and understanding brings one who is naive to someone who is uh, into a, a wiser state. But it also said it's clean, meaning it's without blemish. It's absent from impurity. It doors forever. It's true. God's word is truth. It's altogether righteous. And then you see that where David describes what happens here at the end, that this, this is his desire and his perspective of uh, this wonderful treasure of God's word. He says that it is more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. The Word of God is invaluable, so desirable. And this ought to be our response to to the Word of God, using it to not only have God minister to you, to counsel you, but also to counsel others. And the principle here we ought to see is that that God's word is completely capable to address man's problems. God's word is completely capable to address man's problems. So we're moving on to the third. Man is created in God's image. And then... Really an illustration of this is in an ancient world, a king would use an image in his really authoritative area to communicate and articulate to others to his rule. So there would be some figure that he would, he would put up to say that I'm, you know, I have authority here. Uh, that's the idea of, um, in a sense, of having the, the image and what Christ has done in, 
in giving us and creating us in the, in the image of God. He is, he, in some sense, he has given us to be a representative, to represent him. And some of these uses, I'm just going to list three or actually four in Genesis, and then there's two others in the New Testament, but uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 5, verse 2, and chapter 9, verse 6. You see these references to the, the, uh, the image of God, or the likeness of God. And as I said, the idea of an understanding of image is to see that it's a copy or representation, and really the likeness used is a pattern. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be made in the image, the image of God? Because there's a heresy out there that, that would say that we are little gods. We're not little gods. We're, uh, we're finite creations of God, created very intricately. But what does it mean? Well, it means that in some sense, God has given us a mind to think, right? And so in some way, you know, it's given us a, a even also, too, given us existence. God exists. He always has. So in some way, at least partially now, we exist in a fleshly body here on earth. And there's other examples, too. Just emotionally, relationally, and functionally, God, we exist and bear the image of God. And so if you have other questions, more details about that, you can come ask me later, but I need to move on. But I will state the, the principle behind this, the principle behind being created in the image of God is that true, true fulfillment created in God's image is living in the proper relationship with others and God while being the faithful representative of Him. So how can you do that? You must be saved. You must know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must have His Spirit residing in you, being sanctified, being redeemed. So that goes back to what I was saying about counseling people. So if a person is not counseling, is not a Christian, they don't understand how to live for God. So that's what you ought to do. You ought to start there. Being a person who is created in God's image, who, even for those that even shake their fist at God, have every uh, ounce of their energy poured out to say that there's no God, they still display the image of God by walking around and being, <laughs> just being who they are. And that's important to know because that's, that's why it's important to see that you must have this, this, uh, this presuppositional understanding that man is creating God's image because that's how you address them in counseling and giving them instruction in God's word. Because they're, they're made in the image of God. They're made to be in relationship to Him. And if they're not, they're alienated from God and on their way to eternal condemnation. All right, number four, the sin of man. So we had the holiness of God, the sufficiency of Scripture, and man was created in God's image. And then we, we come here and we land here because this is essentially the reason why there is, you know, the idea of any sort of biblical counseling. It's because people have problems. We all have a problem. The same issue. Fallenness. Wickedness. Transgression. 
sin. And it's important to say that word because there are some people that you would go and see to give counsel, they would not use that word. They would, you know, maybe excuse it for a disease or other things. Again, not to say that people don't struggle with physical things because of sin. We saw that, right? Uh, we're actually going to see an example of that in, in some sense, maybe not directly, but in, in, as we take communion. The church of Corinth, people took of the Lord's Supper improperly, sinning against God, committing, uh, bringing judgment upon himself, even some to the point of dying. But there are physical ailments that can result from living a sinful life. But, I should say, just because someone sick is sick doesn't mean they're sinning. <laughs> doesn't mean they're sinning against God. Just because you have a cold or strep throat or something like that doesn't mean that you have committed uh, a sin against God. You all are very familiar with the truths in Scripture. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everybody. Everyone has fallen short, and they have a heart that is desiring after sin, unfortunately. Even with the the Spirit of God, if you were redeemed, you fight sin every day by His power and by His grace. But there's one important point as we're coming to a close to to note, and uh, it's it's actually in 1 John again. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And this is is something that's important to see because it, it, it... it draws out and communic- communicates that even the, even the Apostle John knew about this rejection of this idea of sin. Read this. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And it goes on, verse, five, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There it is. And then again, verse 10. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Right there. You have it, and it continues today. People will, will reject this idea of sin. Whether they've sinned against somebody, or they're sinning against God, What are they doing? Deceiving themselves. And you may be found in this place today, deceiving yourself against some sort of sin, against a person, your your spouse or a friend or something. That's what sin does. Causes deception. Believe something true that is actually a complete lie. But one of the great things is, and such such a um, just such a, such a proud proud perspective to say that you, if you're if you're standing in a position of saying you you don't sin much or maybe there's some there's some hidden things in your life, but look at chapter two. If you are redeemed, if you are born again and have God's Spirit, chapter two 
Verse 1, Jesus is your advocate. That's why it's such foolishness to reject or to ignore a sin. You might as well you know, say that there is sin in your life and it needs to be dealt with through Christ. Because if it's dealt with properly, Jesus Christ is your advocate. Not your mom, not your dad, not your friends, not your pastor, Jesus. And that needs to be the only advocate for you, for all of us. So the principle here is that the sin of man has caused separation, eternal separation from God. And the need for biblical counsel is here for true fulfillment in a person's life. So if a person is truly going to live a fulfilled life, it ought to be, and it must be, I should say, in Christ. It must be in Him. So I was going to to outline and run through these principles. If you want me to go through them, you can come to me again uh, later. But... I'm going to end with this. Is that the Word of God reveals to us that the holiness of God exposes us to the wicked wretchedness of our sin. And the sufficiency of Scripture shows that true fulfillment is a right relationship with God. So all of these presuppositions and principles is to point you and direct you to understand a position that we ought to take as believers and understand these important truths so that we can not only be ministered to by God, but we can also minister to others as well. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this day and thank you for your your kindness and grace to us. We thank you for the the hope that we have in, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. And we just, as we... Uh, are transitioning now to, uh, to remember, to make a proclamation and re- really remember and maybe even examine ourselves before you as we take the Lord's Supper. May it be something that we take seriously this morning, considering where we stand before you, O oh God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.